Hi, my name is Ben Atkinson, founder of Functional Health Info and the Functional Health Podcast. I'm trained in both biomedical science and nutrition, and I believe that a holistic and functional approach to health is fundamental to our well-being. I've set out to find some of the leading voices in nutrition and lifestyle medicine, from practitioners to professors and everyone in between. With this podcast, I will share with you their stories, their expertise, and their advice, shedding light on the industry from each of their perspectives and providing you with simple tips and tricks to help improve your health from today. This week, I'm delighted to be talking to Rick Miller. Rick is a functional sports dietitian with a master's in sports and exercise nutrition and further training in the principles of functional medicine. He is a vibrant speaker and is sought after by both the Olympic and amateur level athletes to help improve their performance through his integrative approach to diet and health. I first became aware of Rick through several lectures he gave for the Nutrition and Dietetics Society at King's College London and for the Undergraduate Society for Lifestyle Medicine. Apologies in advance if parts of this recording may sound like we're in a small cave. I hope you can still enjoy the episode. So, without further ado, Rick, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ben. Really glad to be here. So for people who haven't heard of your story before, can you tell listeners how you got where you are today in your background? Of course, no problem. So um, interestingly, I, I didn't start out um, practicing dietetics at all. My first degree was actually in human biology um, in St. Andrews University, you know, well over 10 years ago now, which feels, seems like a very long time. Then um, at, at that point, I'd always had an interest in sports performance. Um, I used to be um, quite a high-performing uh, martial artist in karate. And so I always had a passion for exercise and, and obviously nutrition is a huge component of that. And it was whilst I was studying there that I um, I developed this passion for sports nutrition and I subsequently went on to do a master's in sport and exercise nutrition at Loughborough University. And that's where I did my thesis in um, carbohydrate mouth rinsing, which for anybody who follows um, current sports nutrition guidelines, mouth rinsing is something that we use now um, as recommended practice for short-term performance. But maybe we can talk that, about that a bit later for yes. those who are not familiar um and then after that it was you know i spent some time working with professional athletes and um you know i was very lucky to work with some very prominent athletes um working up to the 2008 olympic games um but then i i realized there was something missing really and um i've always been well i like to think is quite a caring individual i i love helping people to get better um i love um helping people resolve um, their illnesses through nutrition and I wanted to do more of that and so that's naturally led me to work in dietetics so I went on to do a degree in dietetics at Leeds and I ended up like every dietitian working in the NHS for a, for a period of time I went straight into specialist obesity management um, and I worked in bariatric surgery for quite some time I did various rotational posts, everything from working in um, a medium secure mental health facility to working on wards, um, working in different uh, rotations in diabetes or pediatrics, all sorts of different things. And then eventually I, I made the break from Leeds to the big smoke of London and I set up a uh, private practice. And um, here I am today, having um, subsequently retrained and done further training in functional medicine. Um, and I'm embracing and, and loving every aspect that it brings to my practice, really, and to the patients who, who get to come and see me. Sounds like a wonderful journey. Um, you've been ups and downs in different kinds of fields. Oh, definitely. I mean, there's, um, there's been more ups than obviously than there are downs, I yes. would definitely say. Um, but I think that, uh, you know, my journey has been, you know, like most clinicians, there's been there's been periods where of frustration, you know. Um, I did find that when I was in the NHS, one of the things that, you know, encouraged me to move directly into full-time private practice was, you know, some of the, uh, the dogmatic and quite red-taped-based attitude to, to making things um, different or innovating. And it was quite a frustrating place to work in at times. And um, I sometimes found that the patients would come back, you know, sometimes year upon year and not really make any progress. And I think some of it, as I hope we'll get into, I think was constrained by the way I was practicing. And I look back and I, I hope now that by my example was, um, you know, sort of um, publicly saying that, you know, I practice as a dietitian in functional medicine, 
that as I'm seeing, you know, more dietitians are embracing this method and they're starting to realize that actually there might be several ways of approaching patient care that actually treats the root cause, you know, rather than just sort of managing the symptoms and um, and just moving them on and getting on to the next one a bit like a sausage factory. <laughs> yes, I suppose it's underpinning personalised medicine. Exactly. Um, yeah, personalised approach to healthcare. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. So you specialised in sports nutrition. Can you describe why that's different to just nutrition for the everyday person who's maybe mildly active or sedentary? Okay, so I think the first difference there is is that you, when we approach sports nutrition from you know the elite perspective or somebody who takes their, their training quite seriously, is food stops being um, just about um, improving your health. It becomes um, a medium for performance. And it's that element of performance that means that you have to be a lot more tailored and a lot more personalized about what fuels you put in the body at what time so for instance if you're you're looking to get this athlete and i'm going to use the word athlete because i think anybody who takes their sport seriously is an athlete you know and i i don't think there's a threshold by which that suddenly happens at all um they say they're trying to build muscle mass and you know maybe think about more about protein dominant dominance in the diet you know if, if maybe there are more endurance it might be more carbohydrates or more fats depending on what approach you're using and also we're having to now think quite differently in the same way that we work in a clinical environment we use a what we call a multidisciplinary approach so you know a patient might have you know several clinicians working them it might be a doctor dietitian physio occupational therapist somebody else a nurse whatever it is an athlete has the same setup often at the professional level they'll have multiple people working with them there'll be a coach there'll be a psychologist there'll be strength and conditioning there'll be a doctor there might be somebody else and so nutrition has a very specific role to play in terms of recovery from day-to-day sessions the fueling of the exercise itself um so during the competition or during the activity itself and what that means and then obviously the adaptations that we're specifically trying to get with the athletes so that's very important and then the final bit which i think isn't taken as maybe as seriously as um it should be and i think that's hopefully changing is this kind of thing this thought around long-term health and what role that plays in making an athlete healthier and obviously then performing for longer. Sports nutrition has been, I think, previously um, labelled with this principle that you, you're simply just sticking fuel in an engine and then the athlete goes. Um, unfortunately, athletes are human beings. <laughs> they, they get sick. Things yes. happen. They get injured. And so nutrition has to flux between being just solely for the purpose of fueling the exercise and getting the best out of it and then also um, ensuring that the athlete is healthy and that they're recovering properly and having a functional approach to that I believe offers the best of the two worlds that we've ever had in this day and age I think athletes are, are moving into a realm where they really can get a personalized approach and ultimately we're going to get incredible performers as more people train in functional medicine. So what is the difference between conventional sports nutrition and the functional side to sports nutrition? So functional medicine in general, we almost think of it um, as a a sort of a timeline. So rather than just taking the athlete at current status um, and saying, you know, what do you like at the moment? Functional medicine tracks all the way backwards to even sometimes the point at which the, the person was delivered, you know, whether delivered naturally or cesarean section, um, you know, and what sort of illnesses did they have in childhood? What sort of medications were they on? You know, what's the family history of different diseases? Because whilst some people may think that these things aren't relevant, these things do all play a role in how well somebody will adapt to their sport how well they're likely to perform in the future what sort of issues are we likely to face in terms of their recovery or illness build up um, and then fourthly which is kind of my uh, my interest area which is in sports gastroenterology mm-hmm. um, you know how can we manage active functional problems and the reason I raise gastroenterology because as you know you're very, very acutely aware, Ben, you know, the, the, the gut and the role it plays in every aspect of our kind of health and well-being is being targeted now as a specific area of sports performance. And if we can understand that properly, we can not only manage functional problems like IBS, bloating, etc. we can actually start to get really amazing adaptations in the athlete. Now, if we um, 
contrast that against the conventional approach. The conventional approach to sports nutrition has been quite top-down. It's you play this sport, this is the range of, of fuels that you'll need to perform that activity. You might need some supplementation, but obviously we need to take into consideration doping, and that's pretty much it, really. Um, and yes, there will be some personalization around hydration, around the types of foods that people will eat, but I rarely see um, sports nutritionists um, without a functional medicine background really going into a lot of detail about the athlete's um, history and understanding where they're coming from in terms of their their uh, medical or, or, or other functional background because it's difficult. It's really difficult. There's a minefield of information to to, um, to really take in and take into uh, consideration. Um, but I think without that, you miss a huge chunk of development that you could get with the athlete and ultimately personalizing their performance to the very fullest. So could you personalize not only the macronutrients, but micronutrients as well? Absolutely. As yeah, and taking into consideration, you know, maybe toxic burden. So, you know, if they've, um, they've been exposed to, you know, huge amounts of um, environmental toxins whilst living in an urban environment, then maybe you don't, you want to be picking, you know, less, um, uh, less toxically burdened foods, maybe more organic foods, or you want to be more careful about the water that they're drinking, or, you know, thinking about supporting their natural detoxification pathways and all these sorts of other things. Um, it's this sort of layer of um, personalization that I believe, and many other functional sports practitioners believe, is the way that people are going to move forward in this realm. And it's only by doing that that we're going to start shaving s seconds off the, uh, the world-class times. <laughs> so just to rewind back you mentioned gut health and um, i know it's, it's often touted by functional and naturopathic medical doctors and medical physicians that gut health or gut integrity and function is the foundation to good health what are your protocols with athletes um, and how do you support gut health to increase sports performance Okay, I think the first thing um, that we probably need to establish is what is different about the gut during exercise as it is maybe when we're sat here today having a nice conversation. Um, so there are several things that happen when people start exercising to the gut. So first is um, you get an increase in um, cardiac output which means that your heart basically beats faster and your blood pressure goes up and obviously consequently blood gets diverted from the gut, which is where it currently sat as we're chatting away and it's helping with digestion. I think the term that um, I, I heard from a good friend of mine, Eve Kalanick, who's a, a nutritional therapist, is it's um, rest and digest. Uh, or there is the opposite, which is what we get during exercise, which is fight and flight. And that's absolutely correct because during that, kind of the the exercise you get an increase in noradrenaline and all these other hormones that help to you know improve um blood movement to the muscle so you can actually do the exercise itself what impact does that have on the gut well it does a few things if you move um blood away from the gut then the activity of the gut starts to slow down so digestion just basically comes to a halt so anything you put into the gut or has gone into the gut recently now can't digest properly so that can make um uh, exercise quite uncomfortable for people especially if they've eaten the wrong types of foods just before training exercise itself um, creates an inflammatory burden to the gut lining now something that has to be established at this moment is what is the gut lining i think people get the wrong idea about it the gut lining itself is, is a one cell thick layer that's that's basically separating everything that's in your gut which includes any pathogens you know or microbes that have managed to get past the the acid that's in the stomach and get through to that area and it's all being processed and fermented as it moves along the colon etc to eventually be excreted and we've taken all the goodness out of it and the the bloodstream so you've basically got one cell's thick worth of layer protecting you from that and so along that layer the integrity of that layer is absolutely pivotal. It's like your kind of bastion of defense against, you know, an armada army that's attacking your 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 castle, your village. Um, so you've got to be, it's got to be strong. And I think people don't take it seriously. And during exercise, as I mentioned, there's an inflammation that occurs in the gut. And that causes the kind of the... Uh, the junctions between the different cells to become slightly more um, permeable. These are called tight junctions that pull the cells together. And um, I'm sure as we'll talk about, you know, later, you know, we can maybe talk about that. Um, 
but that's been shown to actually move apart and become more permeable um, and actually cause a, a situation called hyperpermeability during exercise. Now, the interesting thing is that, you know, people think, well, it's that's not a big issue because obviously the permeability of the gut calms down once the exercise stops. Well, yes, to an extent, that's true. But think about what's getting through. You know, there are gram-negative bacteria getting through and, and we know that gram-negative bacteria contain things like lipopolysaccharide you know and these sorts of things can cause you know in the worst case scenarios you know things like septic shock you know if you stick lipopolysaccharide in somebody's bloodstream you can literally you know cause septic shock so when you think about that kind of burden over time if somebody's doing exercise every day you know just a little bit of this permeability going on and going on and going on it's no wonder that athletes who are performing lots of exercise over a long period of time end up with gut problems and it's a underreported and it's an underappreciated area when it comes to exercise so that's the fir- that's kind of long long-winded uh, example of why exercise itself is damaging yes now the second layer is what do athletes actually put into their gut before exercise and you think about the sorts of things they have just to add on to what you said just to distinguish or clarify um what's the difference between is this more endurance athletes where this becomes a problem or is it weightlifters as well such as powerlifters where it's maybe a, an acute stressor and not you know four hours of to be honest you know what ben that and again this is again just to support what i've said before that this isn't research enough we just don't know there seems to be a huge variability from the systematic reviews that have been done the um, prevalence of gut problems seems to be highest amongst those doing endurance sport and that's probably because they're just simply doing the exercise for longer so yes i think to your example of say a powerlifter who's doing like a you know one heavy lift and putting the weight down probably there's less inflammatory burden to the gut at that point but then obviously you've got to think about the um uh, the kind of abdominal pressures that are being exerted during a you know a really heavy lift or something like that yes um and then obviously athletes don't just do that don't they they go off and they do other sorts of exercises even a power lifter probably goes goes and does a little bit of you know conditioning work or they might go and do a metcon or some other sort of training in the meantime or maybe they just go for a you know a jog with their friend or something like that and that these sorts of things over time if you don't look after your gut they do add up and it's no wonder that i i get you know veteran athletes years later who are sort of saying to me you know in my youth i could eat whatever i wanted and i had an ironclad gut in inverted commas and then now i've suddenly got every intolerance under the sun um and i can't eat anything and everything causes bloating and it's like well you've, you've basically massacred your gut for 30 years and now we're paying the price of it so i think i think science at this point has got a lot to answer for in this area and, and it's no wonder that you know this is accelerating in this area um but just to kind of finish off my point about around this um section and why it differs between sedentary and active people is that athletes then also put all sorts of weird things into their gut when they do exercise so think about sports drink sports drink is basically a very high sugar load straight into the gut so you think about you know lucozade or gatorade or powerade all these other kind of um, beverages depending on what concoction they're putting in it could be protein drinks it could be smoothies it could be all sorts of different things people are using or or gels and things they basically create um, an environment where what we what we term is a high osmotic load and if you remember, you know, for those listening, you know, who are aware of osmosis, osmosis is the movement of water through a semi-permeable membrane from a lower concentration solution to a higher concentration solution. And so basically the water moves from the outside of the gut into the gut. And that causes that transient diarrhea that patient, that the, the, the athletes experience, you know, the kind of runner's trot, you know, the, the awful gut symptoms that people get because of the type of things that they're putting in there. And um, what we're seeing now is that um, there are different ways that you can approach that. And again, this is all part of the sort of personalized medicine approach that we're seeing. Unfortunately, the one size fits all, you know, just drink Lucozade before your sport and make sure you take loads of carbs before you train isn't going to be the best thing for most people. Absolutely. And it's the type of carbohydrates as well that differ, whether it's maltodextron, dextrose, sorry, glucose, fructose and the fructans mm. can cause a real problem for people during exactly. during sport. I recorded recently Dr. Tom O'Brien, who's uh, an expert on the complications surrounding non-celiac gluten sensitivity and celiac disease. Is gluten something that you find uh, to be a particular problem with certain athletes or uh, wheat in general? It, it, is, it does come up a lot because um, 
wheat and 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 gluten con- other gluten containing grains um are one of the top 10 allergens that we you know that i would i would be looking for when somebody reports that they've got some sort of food hypersensitivity so absolutely um and i think our understanding of non-celiac gluten sensitivity or gluten intolerance or whatever like people like to term it um, has in, improved dramatically um, over the last few years and we are starting to appreciate the effects are not just gastric you know they are there are people who present with um, you know this kind of foggy brain or they present with other kind of n- non-gut related symptoms you know skin problems you know the sort of dermatitis um, symptoms autoimmune reactions exactly exactly it all stems from that point though you know is in the gut you know it kind of emanates out there in a wave so to answer your question um, I don't exclude it straight away um, but it is something I definitely consider with athletes and I take it seriously. You know, I don't sort of write it off, um, which hold my hands up. You know, in, in when I first started out, you know, I would have written it off. And I think it's only through training and functional medicine, you know, and, and updating myself that I really started to appreciate the role of food sensitivities in people's um, personalized um, nutrition. And that's athlete or non-athlete. So what are the common food allergens or food sensitivities that you come across? And do you find that's more... Um, in athletes with uh, gut hyperpermeability um, and do you feel that once you've fixed the gut or healed the leaky gut those food intolerances seem to disappear? That's a really great question as well so absolutely I, I think that a lot of the food sensitivities um, often do clear up when you actually fix the gut as it were which can take a long time I think the you know as I, as I gave that example of the kind of the fitness guy who'd been you know with gut problems for 30 years effectively and you know people want always want in this kind of fast-paced society they want overnight fixes and you know I make it very clear to people you know if you've had this problem for like you know 12 months several years it's going to take several months to rebuild this effectively you know we see changes in the gut flora the microbiota um, very very rapidly you know within days you can see changes in the diversity and the types of bacteria that are in the gut just by making a food or a lifestyle choice but when you've got a chronic problem then it can take a lot longer to do that because you're you're not just fixing the the flowers, as it were, the you're arranging different flowers in in the garden. You're fixing the soil that they're living in as well. You know the biofilm. You know that that, that all these bacteria, um, bacteria and uh, microbes live in. Um, you're trying to fix the underlying inflammatory marker, which you know is often their training itself because training is an inflammatory load as i've mentioned and then also any other things that are going on like you know neurological stress you know i think people don't put enough appreciation into the fact that athletes you know and again they might not be professional that i'm working with all the time um have other things going on they have you know, they have the kids to pick up from the school and they have the relationship difficulties and they have the work stresses and they have all the other stuff that goes on. Mm-hmm. And all these start to affect, you know, your gut health. And I think not enough of that is taken into consideration um, with sports performance. You know, we kind of, especially in that kind of environment, because it's it's almost expected these athletes are, are to be unbreakable. And I think that's a really dangerous thing to see especially in sports where there is a a high degree of um aesthetic component so i'm thinking more about maybe the dance professions gymnastics where you know there's an emphasis on leanness and the way that you look it's a huge pressure um and i um and i really i really think about that a lot and it's no wonder that lots of those athletes present with gut problems because of that kind of gut brain relationship you know they the stresses just emanate themselves in gut problems Yes, because it seems like the accumulation of stresses make gut problems worse. Would that be why, for example, IBS patients tend to have flare-ups when they're extremely stressed, whether it be mental stress during an exam or... or... Exactly, exactly that, you know, and I think establishing that quite early with, even with an athlete, is very, very important because, again, if they, you know, if they have, um, you know, some competing issues that are going on right around their competition time, then you know hey ho you know no surprise then they get runners trot on the day that you know they're supposed to be competing and and no amount of playing around with their nutrition sometimes can fix that because of that huge neural um, psychological component so yeah you need to be mindful of that but the functional approach takes that into consideration which i think is really really wonderful about it because you don't um it's a complete way of um, assessing the the client and making sure that they're you're covering all bases 
Now, just to get onto the the controversial topic of specific diets, okay, and sports performance. Sure. So, in the book *The Art and Science of Low Carbohydrate Performance* by Dr. Stephen Finney and Jeff Folick, mm-hmm. they talk about how the ketogenic diet or very low carbohydrate diet, very low carbohydrate high fat diet, uh, could be utilized to improve sports performance. The idea being, if you um, remove carbohydrates from the diet, the body utilizes fat and Mm -hmm, ketones mm -hmm. as a fuel source. And therefore you depend less on glycogen and stored glucose and less likely to hit the wall Mm -hmm. or bunk due to glycogen depleting. Have you found this to be efficacious with your clients or have you used it at all in clinical practice? I, at this, at this point in time, no. And I'll explain why at this point. And it, and it's um, I think that um, Jeff Bolak and uh, Stephen Finney are, are brilliant scientists. And, and also, I'd add in also Professor Noakes as well. You know, who's received a huge amount of um, external pressure. You know, recently, and I would I champion the fact that he's um, you know he's really taken that on the chin. You know, he's, uh, and um, you know he's fought for what he believes in, which I think is amazing. You know, I really look up to Professor Noakes as a you know as a a flagship in in sports science you know um but to come back to the main main question um the the interesting thing is that yes the it's one of these situations where the theory and the mechanism is fantastic um, and it cannot be doubted that you know if you if you switch over to um a low carbohydrate approach ketogenic approach that you do get changes in fuel utilization you know at a cellular level we've shown that you know that you start to switch the way that the mitochondria operate um that you get better um um, adaptations for in, endurance performance um, and certainly there are there are going to be responders to this approach and so I have you know anecdotally I've spoken to lots of athletes who love low carb and it works for them and it's brilliant and they feel great the research that I've done on it both through in the paper you know just looking at the journals and also in the lab I did um, some work with some triathletes where interestingly we used a ketogenic diet but we were looking to see whether a short-term ketogenic diet um, could be used um, in terms of a specific sports performance approach. And I was trying to see if the um, the expected um, reduction in power output that you would see from a short-term ketogenic diet um, would be offset by using carbohydrate mouth rinse, i.e., is it just in your head, basically? <laughs> because um, that's how the, the, the carbohydrate mouth rinse works because you're not swallowing any glucose. You're sort of swilling um, a 6% carbohydrate solution like Lucozade or, or um, Powerade or something like that for 10 seconds and spitting it out. You're not actually delivering glucose to the bloodstream. So the effect is through the um, dopaminergic pathways to the brain, which make you feel better so you perform better. Now, I wanted to see whether that would work in a ketogenic diet situation and see what the psychological component was. Unfortunately, I didn't see any performance improvement. And as expected in my hypothesis, with a short-term ketogenic diet, so these athletes were keto-adapted in um, five days. Most of them were within ketosis, within three, which just shows how quickly you can move into ketosis. And that was verified by blood um, and urine analysis. Um, When they did a time trial, a cycling time trial, their power output, decreased as expected when they switched over to a high carbohydrate diet it improved again now you know the i'm not saying that that's conclusive at all um because again subsequent literature has shown that if you keto adapt an athlete for longer you know maybe six weeks or more some literature is saying you can you can then offset that decrement you know and they start to see an improvement the query for me is, what do I say to the client <laughs> at face value? You know, yes. when you're at the cold face, what do you do with people? You know, so when, so when people say, is it going to work? My answer would be, maybe. Um, and how long is it going to take? I'm not sure because everybody's different. And this is the issue that we're facing. So when an athlete who's time restricted or they're working to, in a seasoned approach, you know, you're working within quite time, tight time limits sometimes. You know, you've got maybe, you know, a few weeks before their next race. Can you realistically put in a, you know, a, a low-carb approach and see some improvements before, you, before race day? And if you can't guarantee somebody that that's going to work, um, I would be reserved in, that, in doing that when I can say categorically that the vast majority of, of clients that I've put on a high carbohydrate diet will perform better on the day. So it might, So I'm not saying it doesn't work. Yes. I think there's definitely people out there who it can work. I think it's teasing out who it's going to work for 
and how do I identify those people? Maybe it's a genetic thing. You know, maybe we need to do some genetic testing to find out, you know, which people are the fat burners and the carb burners um, and what's the epigenetic effect of that. Um, that's when we'll know who to use this with. And I, and I really look forward to that day because I'm very open to, to doing it with athletes. Um, so hopefully that answers the question. Yes, it does. Absolutely. Well, genetics is such an emerging field. And I feel like the more we learn, the more we'll be able to personalize these approaches. The APOE44, for example, mm. can be on a very high fat diet, but their cholesterol will go sky high. Mm. They may be better suited to more Katarvan diet. No, I would agree with that. I would agree with that. And I think that's where um, the use of um, you know genetic testing and nutrigenomics can have a real benefit you know, to the client. It can help you know, like you say, offset the uh, potential um, pathological issues associated with disease, like you say, like yes. heart disease or coronary heart disease. Um, and also then the performance aspect as well. And I think um, I'm not quite there yet with genetic testing wholesale, you know, and, and everybody should be using genetic testing all the time. Um, I think we need a little bit longer to understand, you know, the different plethora of genes that you can use um, and then really understand um, how that can be used in a clinical context, you know. Uh, I'll happily say to anybody, I'm not a fan of testing for the sake of testing. Some people are just curious and they want to test everything. Mm-hmm. All my, all power to them, you know, and if they want to, you know, spend their money, that's great. You know, everyone's got their vice, right? Um, but I, when I've got somebody in front of me who's got a limited budget and they want to know exactly what is useful to them, what's clinically effective, then I have to go with what's got the evidence behind it. And so... You know, for me, genetic testing at this moment doesn't always present a cost um, benefit. And just to rewind back a little bit to the to the diets, so mm. there's been a recent resurgence of low-fat vegan diets being advocated by um, ultra-endurance athletes. Is this a diet which you would recommend or is there any reason why you wouldn't recommend it? Unfortunately, I'm not a huge fan of um, of the vegan or 100% plant-based approaches. Um, I have no issue with anybody and I do have plenty of clients who follow a vegan diet and they're doing very well. Um, I would have to go with the fact that um, if it's an ethical choice, I have to respect somebody's choice just like their faith. You know, yes, to, you know it's, uh, I think it's bordering on that that side of things but if somebody asked me um ethical issues aside you know whether i felt that it was um had any advantages over a um, omnivorous approach you know where you eat meat and fish and dairy and everything else um i would say no categorically um the reason for that is that there are a number of different nutrients um present in animal-based foods that are simply have a better bioavailability than their plant-based sources um and they um, and the protein um, that's available from plant, um, from animal-based sources seems to stimulate protein synthesis to a, m- a much better degree than the equivalent plant-based sources, um, and that's simply from the the presence of certain amino acids. So leucine, for instance, which is a uh, a branch-chain amino acid that's found mostly in, in in dairy products. To be honest, you know, it's got the greatest source. You know, whey protein, for instance. Lots of people using it. Um, in the fitness community, um, yep. has tons of leucine. Um, and it's no wonder that leucine, um, sorry, the whey protein outperforms every other plant-based protein head-to-head in any different scenario, whether it's given before exercise, during, after, or d- micro-dosed. And, you know, you can make an argument that, you know, you can add leucine to the diet, but my my approach is always food first, um, and somebody who's desperate to do a, a plant-based approach, I'm sure we'll find a way around it with, with supplementation. But from a food perspective, then no. So functional medicine is often prescribed or used by nutritional therapists rather than dietitians, that is. Mm. In your opinion, what are the differences between these two professions and the therapeutic interventions that they use? I think that's true for the UK, certainly. It's really interesting, just um, just to give you a little bit of a broader aspect around dietetics across the world. The American Dietetic Association, um, or the, the Academy of Dietetics, as it's, as it's now known, Nutrition and Dietetics, as it's now known, um, actually has had a functional medicine dietitian speciality group for well over 20 years, which I think is unbelievable you know um you know they've they've been going since 1996 you know and they've got a great um following they have fantastic resources and it's a well-respected group within the academy and so i find it you know utterly 
hilarious really to be honest that we we are getting in such a a sort of a kerfuffle around functional medicine and the use of the use of it with clients in dietetics when we have been doing so across the waters for a long long time longer than i've been practicing i think that um some of the the major differences are that dietetic um education and training is fundamentally based in the traditional medical model. Um, it is equipping uh, dietitians to go into the National Health Service and um, primarily as their first source of entry. And so therefore the, the curriculum um, and the, the way that dietitians practice is biased for that environment. So we're quite lucky in the private sector and I can say this having worked in both areas that I, I've got a lot more time with my client you know a typical session with me is anywhere between 60 and 90 minutes when I was practicing in the NHS it could be as low as 10 minutes some people think that only happens to GPs no I had a very quick clinic as well it was called the quick clinic and uh, that I used um, when I was working in obesity management and that was to help with um, you know following up clients so they could see me more frequently um, and so you got used to stripping down your consultations to the bare minimum so that you could get through because you sometimes you would have a, a, a completely chocker um, waiting list of people to see you. And it is sad that there just simply isn't the um, availability of um, dietitians in the NHS to support the needs of all the patients who need nutrition input. Now, query, is that a um, an issue with... Um, how much importance we place on nutrition in the NHS, maybe, maybe, um, and that would mean that we'd need to train more people. What's the solution to that? It means that we need to embrace the absolute pool of amazing practitioners that are out there already working in the community with people doing amazing things where they maybe they haven't been served as well as they could have been in the conventional healthcare system and the reason i say that and it's not um it's not to point fingers at dietitians or, or nutritionists i always have this saying is like point the, fi the finger at the practitioner not the practice so if there are poor practitioners so for instance if you went and saw a doctor and he didn't give you the best care ever it's not that you would never go and see a doctor again although some some people would do that it means that you didn't get good care that time and therefore that we should we should be picking up on that and we should be changing that but it doesn't mean that the practice is flawed it just means that you had a bad experience um and that's why i continue to be a dietitian because i i do I love dietetics and I love what I've learned and I'm very passionate about it but I'm also passionate about functional medicine and so I think that there are grounds that nutritional therapists and dietitians need to meet on because I think there is value to be obtained in both practices and I have an open door policy at my at my clinic if people want to come and shadow me and want to come and see what I do and that includes dietitians that includes nutritional therapists if they want to come see what I do then I am there to help because I used to be a full-time lecturer and I love education. I want to help people to get better at what they do. I want to help patients get better and I want to help practitioners get better if I can be. And I don't have all the answers. This is why I joined the, the British Association for Lifestyle, uh, Nutrition and Lifestyle Medicine, or BANT. And they've recently renamed um, and we've had a renaming title, which is, which is really exciting. But I, I represent functional dietetics on that council. Um, and the reason I joined, which, which was met with some controversy um, from, from the British Dietetic Association uh, membership, um, was that I am passionate about this field. And there are many dietitians who want to practice functional medicine, but they don't have anywhere to go. Um, and they don't know what to do and they're really interested and they want to learn and I think that's really really amazing and that's um, that should always be encouraged um, we should never ever squash education and it should be all, all be about openness and discussion and if I'm a channel that people can get that education then that's brilliant maybe that's my calling the fundamental differences are that um, dietetic like as I said dietitians do trained to work in the NHS and then subsequently afterwards go into private practice, um, whereas nutritional therapists practice from a functional med medicine perspective, which is, as we've mentioned, quite holistic. Um, it's a different model of practice using a timeline, going back to you know day one and basically moving forwards and trying to figure out the root cause. And they, and they all, nearly all operate in the private sector which means that they're mostly working with outpatient conditions. So that's maybe long-term conditions, chronic diseases, autoimmune problems. Um, they're not working in hospitals necessarily. Um, they're not working on wards or doing anything like that at the moment. Um, but there, as I mentioned, there are things to learn from both environments. Um, dietitians also are 
I suppose in some ways lucky enough to have a protected title um, because, because they are managed by the healthcare professions council just like physiotherapists just like speech and language therapists you know just like many other practitioners yeah. and so the title of dietitian can only be used by somebody who has completed a dietetic degree and registered with the hcpc and there are certain criteria that go with that um, nutritional therapists um, again most are registered with the British Association for Nutrition and Lifestyle Medicine. They are um, independently regulated by the CNHC. Um, so they have their own regulatory system. And yes. and the um, the fact that somebody is not with the HCPC does not mean that they are a poor practitioner at all. And I think yourself, you know, you're a nutritionist, Ben, you would say that, you know, exactly, you know, you, that, you know, just because you're not a dietitian doesn't mean that you're a poor practitioner at all. And um, there is a certain degree of snobbery that goes around. And I think I'm... Being humble, I think, in the presence of our fellow practitioners and having the spirit of openness and discussion is the only way that we're going to move forward as a field. Um, and I call it a field because I believe that one day we can all work together. It sounds a little bit utopian, but I would love that. <laughs> the collaboration between healthcare professionals, whether it's working conventionally or, or complementary and alternative medical practitioners, can only benefit the individual and patient. And I think it's extremely important that we move to this. I think just to add to that one more thing, I think that, you know, the, the main thing that worries people is it's around patient safety. And I think patient safety has to be paramount in all in all fields. And contrary to what some may um, say, um, BANTS does have a high degree of rigor when it comes to patient safety and practitioner standards of practice, um, practitioner ethics and code of conduct, much in the same way as dietitians do as well. They have a similar um, continuous professional development um, protocol. If anything, I, in my experience, I've found it to be more frequent and a lot more um, sort of rigorously monitored, to be honest, um, than, than the HCPC equivalent. And I would say that when there is a degree of um, safety that's a concern, then, then people should raise their voices, and that's and that's ac across both fields. Um, and as you say, you mentioned there about complementary approaches. You know, there are things that do sit completely outside the spectrum. You know, in terms of medical approach, and some things can't be explained. You know, and why they're working for some patients, and other, and maybe there's a placebo effect going on, or or whatever. Um, and I think instead of um, calling each other quacks and fighting fads, you know, or um, basically slandering each other on social media, I think we should, again, I think we should be more um, polite um, and have some professionalism about the way that we talk to each other as practitioners because we've all practiced in some way. We've all gone through huge amounts of, um, of, of training to get to where we are. And I think as... Um, you know, there's a great um, physician called David Katz, which I'm sure you're very aware of from the University of Yale in America. Yes. And he, he actually discussed this point quite recently. And he actually said that there are more similarities and there are differences between all types of different practitioner. We're all trying to help patients. We all care about patients. We're all using food as our, as our method of treating them. So the differences are almost, um, they pale into insignificance after a while. And it's about, and the only way we're going to get around those is to talk. So do you think from from your standpoint that nutritional therapists and dietitians can complement each other and do you think that will ever happen? Absolutely. I mean that's um that's absolutely the case here in my practice here at um in Harley Street. Um so we have um four nutrition practitioners here. Um one I'm very lucky enough to be able to call my fiance which is wonderful. She's a a naturopathic nutritionist um and uh you know we have a, a GP here who's also Dr. Laura Quinton who's trained in um naturopathic nutrition too and also another nutritional therapist stephanie moore and um you know all four of us have got great practices all four of us are seeing patients and all four of us are all working together but the thing that holds us all together is functional medicine we all have the similar kind of mindset and i think even if practitioners don't have the same mindset i think there is there is there is ground for everybody to work together um and ways to refer between each other to make sure that um the patient gets the very best experience but all the while that people are kind of saying i'm better than this person and worse than that person it doesn't help the patient at all we're all after the same goal, which yeah. is helping the patient get better, mm. whether it be a nutritionist, nutritional therapist, dietitian, functional medicine practitioner, chiropractor who's trained in functional medicine. It should be a collaborative approach exactly. rather than trying to fight each other who's right and who's wrong. Yeah. I think um, one thing as well is um, 
that stops us moving forward is is, is fear. Um, and fear is a funny thing because fear makes you do strange things as a, um, I suppose in, in a professional standpoint as well as on a personal standpoint as well. You, you do things that you, you, you don't think that you would do rationally if you had time to think about what you're actually doing. And I, when I stand back and I look at what's happening in the sort of infighting amongst different fields and the approaches that people are taking to kind of justify why they're better than the other, it's all based on fear because no one owns the field of nutrition. No one owns medicine so for anybody to turn around and say we are the only people who can talk about nutrition or we are the only people who can prescribe nutrition i think that is absolutely backwards um it's totally reductionist um i'm a free marketeer when it comes to um any type of, of, of medical approach and i think the patient is the one who decides which one is the most useful patients decide with their feet at the end of the day you know they're not if something's not working they're not going to keep going back to it um or they're very very silly and um they're not shopping around very carefully um and I think no, um, somebody who's really seen the brunt of that, you know, is um, Dr. Rongon Chatterjee, um, you know, with his prescribing lifestyle medicine course. You know, Bant is really is supporting um, his course. And I'm, I'm again, I'm a huge advocate for him. And he's a, a wonderful doctor and a, and a really great person. I know you've met him too, haven't you, Ben? Yes. Yeah. Um, I think what he's doing is absolutely amazing for the medical profession. And I can say categorically as a dietitian um, that um, there are a number of, um, you know, nutrition practitioners across across the different spectrums who are worried about what Rongan's doing. And I just want to make it clear that um, having, say, a doctor like Laura, who's trained in nutrition, has not reduced the number of patients that I see in nutrition um, because because she's trained in that field. Um, if anything, it's increased. And that's because she understands nutrition. I think all the while that people are kept ignorant, and that includes doctors, about nutrition, they will never value it. You can't value something that you don't understand. Yes. So I think if doctors are empowered to understand nutrition, to prescribe, you know, in some ways, um, nutrition, they can then best make um, referrals to a specialist. For exactly. Me, which is what I wanted to, I trained to do. Um, one of the, the funniest things is, is that... Um, um, one of the one of the uh, biggest complaints I used to hear from again from dietitians and from nutritionists is that they would see the same patient over and over again, you know, with very basic questions, you know, about nutrition. I thought to myself, well, if you're going to complain about that, you can't really complain if a doctor is going to give out that advice as GP appointment because surely <laughs> then you're going to get the cool stuff, you know, in inverted commas, you know, yes. that's really testing what you learn. But let them prescribe the the basic you know, lifestyle advice, and then we're going to get to the juicy stuff, you know, where you can really flex your kind of nutrition muscle, as it were, and understand, you know, get to the, the root cause of those patients who aren't getting better by using the, the basic approaches. But we're not going to reverse the chronic disease burden that we've got. We're not going to reverse the pandemic of obesity without doctors on the front line being empowered with basic nutrition um, information and as I say you know dietitians nutritionists nutrition nutritional therapists we're not the police on this you know so um, you know go run gun and I um, I support you 100% all the way for listeners I'll put the prescribing lifestyle medicine course in the show notes so people can access that from clinical education and NutriLink <laughs> more questions i'd just like to cover with you yeah. um often just to revert back to sports performance sure, of course so often um athletes may or may not use complementary and alternative medical practitioners that includes osteopaths chiropractors things of that nature can you comment on whether you think these are, are useful to use in a clinical practice or for sports performance and are they for everyone of course um you know what it's really interesting because when it comes to sports performance there's lots of things that athletes do that again there isn't a huge amount of evidence for i have to be honest um and, and similarly across even clinical nutrition there's lots of things that we do that don't have a lot of evidence but to stick within the sports side of things um with osteopaths chiropractors you know physiotherapists you know i i have patients that i refer to each of them and what's more important to me is which of these patients is going to get the very best result from and that comes down again to the patient you know i've had patients who would benefit best from seeing an osteopath i've had patients who've got great results from seeing an msk based 
um, chiropractor or a physiotherapist because they want to go and do a specific type of Pilates or whatever it is. I think it should be less around the exact title that somebody has and more around what they actually do with the person. Um, and that's more important to me. So when I, um, when I uh, start to in interact or refer to different practitioners in, in my local area, it's very important to me that I, I go and meet with them and I get to understand who they are, you know, what sort of person they are. Because effectively what I'm doing with a patient when I'm referring them on is I'm, I'm entrusting them to somebody else's care and if I don't know the person and I don't haven't met them, you know, I don't I wouldn't be confident in doing that. And it's amazing how often I used to do that in the NHS. You know, I didn't know some of the doctors that would I would be referring people onto because I just didn't have a choice. You know, you know, you would just, you know, say, I think you really need to be referred to secondary care and, you know, cross your fingers that they see the right person. But I think when you've got the opportunity for those who are working in the private sector and you are working maybe in sports performance, um, you know, all of them can work and evidence aside, make sure it's the right practitioner for your for your client and build up a relationship. And then it might be that you, you end up with a, a wonderful profile for each practitioner practice that you can then send the right patient to and you can start to personalize it even more. And that's what the patient needs. And um, how do you see the future of dietetics changing as functional medicine continues to progress? And do you see organizations changing their opinion on this, membership organizations? I I live and hope for the day that um, we do have a, a sort of functional uh, medicine section of um, the Dietitian uh, Association um, that we start to embrace it more. And I think that will come. I think that the um, the public is speaking. They're speaking with their feet. They're speaking with their um, with their mouths. Um, and they're also they're crying out for more of this because they're seeing it work. And I think that. I'm seeing that as well, that dietitians want to learn more about this. So I think it will change. And I think with that, and will come eventually the recognition that we need to start embracing. Because unfortunately, um, unless we go, as I say, to our American brethren and start to embrace what they have done, we have to start reaching out to who's closest to us, which is, you know, the functional medicine practitioners, which is the nutritional therapist. They've been doing this for the longest period of time. And my only experience of working with nutritional therapists, you know, and I'm, I'm very privileged to be able to do so, um, is that I've only been met with, um, you know, with kindness and care and with, um, with openness and a willingness to learn and no judgment um, on my part. So, you know, if, if there are any sort of dietitians out there who are listening to this podcast and who are, you know, worried or want to know more about nutritional therapy i would say reach out either to me and i'll tell you exactly what it's like or don't be afraid go and speak to somebody you know who is working in your Claire and just talk to them um, and find out more and be willing to read and to understand and and, f and take what's useful and um, reject what isn't i mean that's the classic bruce lee phrase isn't it from jeet kune do the Tao of jeet kune do you know reject what's useless and uh, keep what's useful um, I think it's important also to, to show some skepticism of these approaches rather than some cynicism, yes. which is often uh, shown by a lot of these practitioners. I agree. I agree. I think you're right. There's a massive difference between skepticism and cynicism. You know, skep healthy skepticism is how we move science forward. Um, you know, if we embraced every single thing that came along, you know, we'd be using all sorts of weird and wonderful things in, in this clinic to treat people and not many of them would have much scientific rigor to them. Yeah. But I think to um, um, to be disrespectful um, and sort of, um, I suppose, reject um, everything, um, having not actually learnt or experienced, I think is, is a very, very poor way to practice. And I, unfortunately, I do see that quite a lot um on both on all sides you know the rejection of um maybe things that are in dietetics the rejection of things that may be in sports nutrition or in conventional um you know dietetics or nutritional therapy or naturopathic nutrition and there are things to be learned everywhere and i've always had this this policy of you know i want to learn i want to understand and my practice is, is always improving because of it and um, you know you want to be always thinking you know how can i grow how can i improve how can i serve my patients better and i think if you have that mindset um you're never ever going to go too far wrong how can people find you and are there any events that listeners can come watch you speak so well people can find me on 
the classic channels. Like if they go into Google and search for Rick Miller dietitian, then I'm definitely going to pop up there and, and all my details are online. But yeah, I, I practice from, from Harley Street, um, 25 Harley Street and from the, the Institute of Sport and Exercise for Health, which is in Fitzrovia, Tottenham Court Road. And um, you know, they can find all my practice details on there. And um, you know, if they want to reach out, you know, whether they're, like, as I mentioned before, whether you're a, you're a student, whether you're a practicing dietitian, whether you're a patient, whether you're somebody who just wants to have a chat and to connect, my door is always open and I, and I really love connecting with people. So that's my policy. You know, don't be shy. Please connect and, and, and talk to me. I'd, I would love to meet more people about that. Um, how can uh, people um, see me in the flesh? Um, then I do run a um, GP education program at the Institute of Sport and Exercise for Health. Uh, the last one I did was on sports gastroenterology with my dear friend, Dr. Uh, Robert Fern, who's um, a, uh, a senior gastroenterologist um, at the Princess Grace Hospital. And we actually run a, um, a, a functional sports um, gastroenterology clinic um, there. So we're, it's probably one of the first of its kind, actually, um, where we specialize in this field for athletes. Um, the, um, the other way that um, people can, can see me as well as various different uh, conferences and events, um, I should be at um, ICANN next year, talking about um, sports nutrition Great. as well. And um, I'm hoping to start um, regular lecturing with the uh, Functional Sports um, Medicine Institute, um, which also um, has its uh, its own magazine as well, Functional Sports Nutrition. You might be familiar with it. Yeah, FSN. FSN, yep, that's the one. Um, so yeah, there's um, and there's various little events that I do around. So if people, you know, keep in touch or subscribe to my newsletter, um, then I'm I'm always making people aware of that. As a takeaway for listeners, can you recommend or have three suggestions for people just to improve their health or sports performance? I think we've made it quite clear today about how important uh, the the uh, gastrointestinal tract is, and um, but I think being kind to your gut is really important, and that and that means uh, from end to end. Okay, um, just to just to say that, so start with your mouth, you know, so go to your dentist and make sure your teeth are clean because your uh, microbiota starts in there. Make sure you've got good oral health. Then as you start to track down, you know, look after your gut. Start eating a you know a, a real diversity of food. Um, and trying to get in as many different, um, you know, gut-friendly uh, prebiotic foods that you can uh, into your diet, because that's only going to help your long-term health and, um, you know, yeah, resolving um, many of the problems that are afflicted by chronic um, society and, and, and disease burden today. So that's the first thing I would say, is look after your gut. The second thing is also is, watch your training volume. Um, something we didn't go into a huge amount today, um, but I'm hugely passionate about, is not overtraining. I see a lot of people these days, and I think it's part of the kind of high-intensity interval training culture, is just absolutely killing themselves all the time. You know, it's sort of, you know, whether it's CrossFit every single day. Yeah, with the WOD. Uh, yeah, workouts yeah. the day, you know, you know, doing insanity classes or whatever. People have this um, perception that you have to, you you have to sweat it to get it or you have to you know kill yourself every time or you can't get the body of your dreams the absolute opposite is true every time you do that you're you're pausing a stressor on your gut which is probably making it harder for you to actually get into shape um and all the while you're doing that you know you're doing less of the things that are actually going to help you in the long term so maybe it's taking time up for reflection you know maybe it's um uh, doing some more mindfulness work you know maybe it's doing more with your faith whatever it is to reduce the stress in your life so that you actually start to be kind to your body again you know and the third thing i would say is to um to start with whole food you know in the sports industry you know there's a huge emphasis placed on supplements um and there are places for dietary supplements don't get me wrong you know and i do recommend patients to take various supplements i'm not shying away from that at all and um, what i'm saying to people is start with food you know look at your diet you know take a hard look at it you know are you eating as well as you could be based on your income and based on your capacity to cook and the things that you can buy and make a real effort to start improving your diet that way you know buy one of the great books that are out there you know but maybe you know wrong on chatterjee's you know four pillar plan you know or seen maholtra's uh, piopi diet or one of these other great books that are sort of starting from a functional perspective and start you know trying to um to actually improve your diet as best you can and you know what when you do that um you'll probably get some great performance just through that and then layer on top all the supplements and things like that. And you'll probably do yourself an absolute service. Rick, it's been a real pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much. And I look forward to speaking to you again soon. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to the Functional Health Podcast. 
I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Rick Miller. You can find links to Rick's website and clinic in the show notes, as well as everything else that we discussed today. He's an extremely knowledgeable individual, and it was very hard to squeeze everything into one hour. He may have to come on again very soon. If you want to support the podcast, please subscribe and don't forget to check out the other episodes available in the series. I would love it if you got in touch on social media through Instagram and Twitter and let me know what you think. As always, thanks to Joss Aurelia for the editing and Alan Harper for his support.